Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. I had a really great conversation that you're about to listen to with Derek Mixbayali, who is a three-time Grammy Award-winning engineer and a longtime collaborator with TDE. Listen, if you are a big Kendrick Lamar fan or a TDE fan, Ali needs no introduction. You've been known about Ali. But if you're less familiar, you probably heard Backstreet Freestyle and you know that line at the end where Kendrick says, let it run, Ali. This is Ali. He mixed that beat and so many more projects for the whole entire team at Top Dog Entertainment. And he's since launched a startup. This startup is called Engineers, and it is a platform built for audio engineers to mix their music and find their projects so that they can leverage the full power of the internet to collaborate with others. Derek himself is an engineer, and this is a group of people in the industry that are often not necessarily forgotten about, but they don't necessarily have the same tools that the producers have and some of the others. There's so many type of tools out there for artists that sometimes it can be hard to keep track, but Derek really found something unique. And in this conversation, it really is a step through finding product market fit. Derek starts with himself, finding out what his pain points are. Then he had workshops across the world where he's talking and understanding, learning more from customers. And that is what led to starting and launching Engineers as a platform. And he brought us through the journey of what it's been like to fundraise, what it's been like to pitch and get backing for that. And it wasn't always the easiest. Even someone as successful as him still had his challenges when it comes to fundraising. I learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you do too. Here's my conversation with Derek Mixbiali. So today we got Derek Mixbiali, who is a Grammy-nominated mixing engineer, and he's the founder and CEO of Engineers and this actually isn't the first time that you launched a business. You had a ringtone business when you were in high school. And uh-huh. I want to talk about that because as someone that had sold CDs in high school, I always have a personal affinity and connection to people that were hustling at a young age. So talk to me about that. Well, real quick, I don't want to throw you too old, but it's three-time Grammy Award winning, by the way. You know, I love oh, three my, time. My I bad. love my award winning. I love my accolades. I worked hard to get them. So I want to make sure they're out there and known. But yeah, and I started off doing ringtones. I've always been a hustler. You know, one of the guys in the neighborhood, I I had the paper routes. I had, you know, uh, the lawn mowing landscaping business in middle school. So I've always just been intrigued and I love hard work. You know, I love, you know, when you do hard work, you get paid for it. But obviously when I got into high school, it was a different time. You know, I'm, I'm playing football. I don't have too much time to get a job, but I've always loved computers. You know, my uncle has been a computer engineer all of my life. So, you know, for Christmas, I would be gifted computer games and computers or whatnot. So... For the most part, I've been pretty computer literate, you know, during my upbringing. And um, it was this one thing. It was a time around the 2005s where like the Nextels and the Chirp phones were like a thing. Everybody had the, you know, the, the, the walkie talkie phones. And I found an application online that I could download and it cracked those phones and uh, gave me the ability to upload actual songs instead of ringtones onto the phones. So from that, it turned into me inviting people over to my house after football practice and after school, charging, you know, 20 bucks a song. And they would come record like 30 second snippets, just parody ringtones, you know, don't answer this girl's phone or, hey, your mom's calling, time to get home, whatever the case was. And I kind of just fell in love with the art of recording at that very moment. And, you know, I went from recording 30 second ringtones to, you know, doing full length songs. 
Mm. And was there a specific ringtone that was the most popular? I know you were mixing your own, but for the ones that people requested. I mean, it was always the ones that, you know, that your girlfriend's calling, don't answer. You know, it was always one of these, always one of those immature uh, high school ringtones. But really, they would come over and, you know, sometimes they would even record full songs. And I would just take a 30 second snippet of it and just use that. But it ranged, you know, it ranged. Everyone's a comedian back in high school. So it was a range of, uh, of funny and different type of ringtones. Right. And I'm sure with something like that, you probably had your intro price, but then for the repeat customers, probably had some type of discount because I'm sure you were the only person that were offering something like that. Right. 100 percent. 100 percent. Yeah. At that time, again, you know, all the ringtones just had the basic the beeping tones. So when people seen the phones that I had and they had, you know, full length recordings on them, people were like, yo, like, how can I get mine? But nah, I just, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't that deep into business to have different rates and things like that. It was 20 bucks. You come over, give me dub and we can keep it pushing, you know? Mm. And I could see how the, even though the, you said the business skills wasn't the thing that were there, the mixing and the ability to understand sound and what works and what doesn't that stuck with you. And there's obviously the through line of that to how you had started things and got things kicked off with your music career and mixing. 100%, man. I, again, I was one of those kids, you know, I had severe ADHD. Uh, nothing can really tame me. I was one of those kids that would break apart a toy or an RC car or an RC helicopter or a computer, tear it apart just so I could see how it worked and then try to put it back together. And when I learned that I could do that with music, that's when, okay, I, I fell in love with the art of recording at that very moment. Like, So I'm like, you're telling me I could take a kick and a drum and a vocal I can add specific, you know, elements to it, reverbs, delays, some type of compression or EQ on it. And I can end with a completely different product. You know, that kind of was like, you know, it kind of messed my head up and I kind of caught the bug and I just, you know, I couldn't afford the music schools. And I did most of my research online, just forums and blogs and just studying people that, you know, looked like me that I knew of that did it and seeing what route they took. So I kind of just took all the things that I've accumulated and learned online and things that I've seen on MySpace and kind of just built my own path that way. And what was the breakthrough point for you that things started to hit the traction? You were like, okay, this isn't just me doing this as a hobby, or this isn't just me doing this to see where things are happening. No, there's a future here. It wasn't until a few years later after that, I would say. So I started around 2005 uh, when I was doing the ringtones, around 2007 or eight. That's when I was really, I really had the bug and I was really on a quest to really find out how to get the best equipment. What is the best equipment? You know, how can I get my hands on it? If I can't get my hands on it, how can I get access to it? Obviously, you know, it's a cliche story from the hood, didn't have no money. You know, I didn't have two wooden nickels to rub together. So how am I going to go pay for this, you know, thousands of dollars worth of equipment? But at this time, Dave Free, who was the TD, who was the president of TDE, he worked at my high school at Gardena High. So I knew he was on the scene doing his music thing, and he DJed as well. So, you know, naturally, that was the only person in my network that, you know, did what I did, but at, the, at a higher level at that time. So, you know, I reached out to him and saying, hey, you know, I'm not looking for any handouts. You know, I'm willing to work for anything. I just want to just learn. You know, I want to be put in a situation where I can learn to create a future for myself in this field. And, you know, brought me on board. And, you know, I came since, that was maybe 2000, like I said, 2008, 2007. From then, you know, I kind of just took, all of the recording that we did from TDE. And I just, you know, that was my trial and error. So it wasn't really until Kendrick signed to Dr. Dre in about 2012 until I really said, okay, this is something that 
is changing my life. You know, I'm one of those people who keep my head underwater. And, you know, I can't really look up and see what's going on until it really hits me in the back of the head. And, you know, when Kendrick signed to Dre, that was the smack in the back of the head that woke me up saying, hey, you know, it's time to build. Right. Yeah. Because when Good Kid, Bad City came out, that was obviously big for him. It was big for the label, but he gave you the shout outs, too. And then you became a known entity from that point. 100 percent. That time is, you know, from the Kendrick Lamar EP to the Kendrick Lamar OD to Section 80. You know, we've been curating a sound, you know, we curated a sound that was so unorthodox compared to everything that was out in that time. So that was one of Kendrick's stipulations, you know, when he, when he did the deal and we was working on the album, like, yo, like, we're, obviously Dre is a master when it comes to audio engineering and mixing, but we have a sound that we've curated that's so unorthodox that not one person can really learn it off the bat. So I want Ali in those rooms as we're mixing the album to make sure that we get the best of both worlds. We get the effects and all the crazy quirkiness that I brought to the table with the clarity that Dre brought to the table. So it was a perfect marriage when he created that classic album. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that I've always loved and respected about hip hop from a production perspective itself, because, of course, artists have their own style. But you saw so much of that. You heard so much of that from the producers and the mixers and being able to hear that through. You know, the minute that you hear a record that sounds like it's a TDE record and even within that, a Kendrick record. And that's a pretty powerful position to be in. Right. I mean, that's always been, you know, like my thing coming out the gate is, you know, anybody can just do an up and down clean mix. But what's going to make you stand out? You know, what is going to be your sonic thumbprint? You know, and that's when I started playing with sound imaging and just doing things that make complete no sense, like on uh, swimming pools with Kendrick's uh, high pitched conscious vocal panning left to right. You know, during that time, there's not too many mixes that were jumping out the speakers like that. And I, I call that experiencing a song. I want you to experience a mix. And that mindset kind of made my career because at that point, once that album kind of blew up, people noticed the mix and like, yo, who did that? And when they checked the credits, they said, okay, I want Ali to do it. I want Ali to do it. I want Ali to do it. And then from that, you know, I just build my network, build my relationships, steady, grinded, learning as much as I can throughout that process. And I'm here today. Right. And I'm sure now it's from the other lens where you probably have so much demand that you can offer all of the opportunities or you can't offer all of the gigs or the things that may come your way. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, I also understand, like I said, bandwidth, I understand that fully, but I, and I understand my demand. So what I do is I've, I've over the past years, I've built and trained a team to listen exactly the same way I listen. So I have a team full of engineers that start mixes for me and I come in and tweak them to get them finalized to make sure I can keep up with the demand and also maintain my quality control. Mm. And I can imagine that's tough, too, because what you're doing, you're mixing both. I'm sure there is some aspect of science to how you may go about things from a technical perspective, but there's an art. You are an artist and being able to replicate that. I think certain things can be taught, but I'm sure there's still some of it that requires that high level of quality control because of that. I think nowadays it's more about unlearning. It's about unlearning the stigmas of how these books are teaching you to do things that were relevant in the 70s and 80s compared to now. It's just what sounds good, you know? So it took a lot of me really untraining my assistants and even myself to not go by the standards that are thrown our way from these music schools and institutions. You know, music to me is how can somebody tell you how to hear something? You know, it has to be a certain type of feeling. So what I preach to my team and I preach in our workshops that I do around the world is, you know, try to find the feeling and try to find the momentum of the song and then attach yourself to that. And next thing you know, then, you know, you're going to really, you know, find those those sounds that stand out within a song and know how to really, you know, manipulate that. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about these workshops. Like, what are those like in terms of how you're trying to obviously communicate things to a certain group? But how have those been in terms of being able to communicate and spread that message? 
Right, right. Well, for me, you know, it, it all came about because, like I said, I couldn't afford the music schools. You know, I didn't know the terminologies. I didn't know how to speak about specific things. Again, everything is trial and error with me. And once I realized there's thousands, maybe millions of kids the same way, diamonds in the rough that, you know, want to be in this field, you know, have the inkling to want to be the best, but they just don't have the funds or the resources to, you know, go out and go to these schools or, you know, have the conversations with the people that know the terminologies and so on and so forth. So, you know, I kind of created it to really shed light on those diamonds in the rough and show them I'm no different from you. You don't have to know the ones and the zeros to be the best. You just have to want to be the best. So, you know, we did the workshops. We really started with our Instagram. You know, we started this engineer's Instagram where I was just giving tips and, you know, techniques and things that I've acquired over the years to really inspire the youth. You know, let the youth know that you can use a random plugin to affect a vocal or you can use a drum plugin to affect, you know, a snare, just things that make no sense, right? It's using all these things as tools. And as the, you know, the community grew from that, we realized, and I just realized quickly, like there's a lot of people out there that want this information, but they just, again, don't have resources and don't know how to get it. So we said, you know, how can we how can we make our Instagram more tangible? How can we give our following our community something more hands-on to really feel part of this family? So we decided to do a workshop. We did the first one in LA uh, at the end of September of uh, 2018 at the 1500 Sound Academy. The first one was five-hour workshop. The first half was me telling my story, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, letting them know I'm human. I've, I've made mistakes. I still make mistakes. I go through mental health, you know? And then the second half, I uh, go through a full deconstruction of some of my biggest work, whether it's my process, my thought process, techniques, tools that I've used, so on and so forth. Really let everyone feel like they're in the studio with me at that very moment so they understand why I did specific things and how I did it. So we launched those. We did the first one. It blew up. We posted the recap videos online and our socials. Our community just completely just lost their shit. Excuse my language. But they, you know, we started getting requests from Germany, from Japan, Korea, all through Europe. So we said, you know, let's do it. You know, I reached out to a few booking agencies uh, like ICM and William Morris. And, you know, they all kind of turned me down because I guess at that time there was no value in audio engineer doing a world tour. So, you know, again, I'm one of those people who, if you tell me no, I'm going to figure out a way to tell myself yes. So I self-funded the workshop, the tour, self-funded the tour through pre-sale tickets and it sold out within six weeks. So again, we traveled the world, you know, linking up with all these talented producers and engineers and artists, really inspiring them to want to be the sound of tomorrow. And yeah, that's kind of how the workshops came about. Hmm. That's powerful. And clearly you saw that there's an opportunity to reach one to many in these settings. It's mind boggling that these booking agencies didn't see the value in what you were doing, but obviously you were able to show that with the demand and you have the ability to quantify all of that, whether it's through social media or anything else you have. But in hearing you describe this, I can also see the next evolution of this to how something like engineers as a tech platform came to be because as much as you can reach one to many through these workshops, it still isn't scalable in the same way that a technology platform can be. Of course, being able to communicate that message is really important and powerful, but you being able to have the tools to make it easy for the thousands, the tens of thousands, the millions that want to be able to see what you're doing and also specifically reaching out to the engineers, the mixing folks specifically, because I do, I don't necessarily think that they're always get the type of tools and opportunities made for them. I can see the connection to why you would want to launch the type of company that you did. 
Right, right. I mean, first of all, when it comes to me in general, like if you if you put my back against the wall, I'm gonna come out swinging every time. You know, I was in special ed through high school. I've been through you know people not understanding my ADD and categorizing me a certain type of way, and I proved them wrong every time. So once somebody told me I couldn't do workshops, that's another mission that I had to prove everybody wrong. And even with the platform, you know, people said it wasn't possible, and again, proving people wrong. But you know, again, engineers are the most underrepresented creatives in the industry, and I've learned that throughout the time being who I am in the industry, and also doing the workshops. You know, it was one thing that we did at the first workshop that we did at all of them that kind of gave us the spark to create this platform. And what we did is we asked all of our attendees to fill out a questionnaire. You know, as a small business, what are you dealing with in real time? You know, me being an audio engineer and me also running a business as an audio engineer, I realized I am a small business. I pay my own taxes, you know, do my financials, promote myself, market myself, deal with my own customer relations, so on and so forth. So by me asking these people, you know, what are the issues that you're dealing with in real time as a small business, whether you're a writer, producer, engineer, and we got thousands of people from all of our workshops filling them out. So we were planning on doing Africa, Australia, and South America, but COVID came. So we had to take, you know, we had to pause all the workshops. And again, I'm a firm believer in everything happening for a reason, because at this time we came home, we looked at all the R&D from the workshops and I, I realized like, holy shit, these people around the world in 2021 are dealing with the same thing that I'm dealing with. And I'm fucking one of the biggest mixers in the game, whether it's, you know, tracking payments, whether it's getting credited, whether it's dealing with antiquated processes of communications and, and transferring files, you know, it's like, you know, as the independent music sector is continuously growing at such a rapid rate, there's always new things being created for the musicians, for the artists and the producers. But for the first time in maybe all of music industry history, the engineer is being championed by the artist and producer more than ever. But there's no tech or nothing being created for them to help them manage to stay in their businesses. So by looking at the R&D, by me realizing the problems, because I'm still dealing with them in real time, it was it made the most sense. Okay, now we got to create the solution because we understand the problem. So we spent maybe about 10 months just building out the team. You know, we hired Luke Sorensen, who was our CTO, putting all the ideas that Dan had in our head on paper to make it real. And, you know, January 21, we launched our MVP and we've been growing since then, you know, constantly talking to our users, constantly doing outreach, constantly just hyper-focused on product, figuring out how can we make this the best possible product for recording and mixing engineers around the world. That's great. And in the past six months, while you've been testing it out after the MVP, what have been some of those learnings? Because I'm sure it's always a little different from spending the time internally, making sure that it's right. But then, okay, you get the feedback and you're iterating. What have been some of those learnings since you put out the MVP out? And that's the most interesting part about it is because these tools have not been provided to, again, the most underrepresented creative in music. Like They all love every aspect of it. It's just fine-tuning them to make sure that you know we're adding on the right specific features. You know, as of now, the platform it offers engineers to give you the ability to, you know, really track payments, send files, communicate with artists, and give you that automated streamlined workflow. And as of now, as we're doing our hours, you know, we just crossed, you know, in in the six months that we've been live, you know, our gross merchandising volume just crossed 150,000. We have 2,500 engineers on our wait list waiting to be onboarded. And we have over 5,000 total users on the platform between artists, producers, and engineers. And this is with $0 in marketing. This is all word of mouth and all really fixing a problem. You know, we really fixed a problem. So they're all coming in waves to figure out how can they be onboarded. But through the projects that we've had, that we've taken. So out of the 5,000 users that we have on board, only 100 of them are verified engineers. Verified engineers are the ones available to actually book work. And the reason for us only onboarding a specific amount of engineers is so we can kind of understand both sides of the spectrum. We want to know what part of the process you like and don't like as an artist, what part of the process you like and don't like as an engineer. And also, 
asking them in real time, okay, you are an engineer that has used the process and used the platform. What can we add? What could be the, what could and should be the next next feature that we should add to make your life even more easier? You know, so we're being real strategic. We're we're being very intentional. And again, it's all about community, reaching out to our community daily, reaching out to all the engineers and artists that are booking projects just so we can understand what do you like, what don't you like, so we can hyper-focus on next features and move accordingly. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because I think that being able to limit the group probably just made it even more valuable too, right? I think after a certain point, not that there's noise when you have too many people, but you need to have that cohort of people that you at least develop some sort of cadence with moving forward. I think that's important. 100%. And that's been value itself. You know, it's like we get people just posting, yo, I'm on the wait list. I can't be wait to be on board. Like, it, you know, we're seeing that we are building the community. You know, we are the ones that are really going to be verifying engineers to let in the industry know that this is the next guy coming up or the next girl coming up. You know, come take a look at her and him here. You know, the mm-hmm. whole goal is to really standardize the process and the business behind the recording arts. For so many years, there has not been a standardized process to managing your business. It's just using Gmails, Dropbox, Instagram DMs, so on and so forth to conduct and manage your business. That's not scalable. That's not sustainable. You know, you're going to spend more time dealing with the stress of managing all of that than you would be creating. So the fact that I can understand that because I am sitting in the studio daily dealing with the problems, not in Silicon Valley in some 40, 40 story building skyscraper trying to fix a problem. I understand it. So again, we're just being real strategic, real tact, you know, real tactful and, and very, very intentional with our every move. What has the fundraising process been like for this? I know you mentioned with the workshops, you had to put a lot of money up for that yourself and you got a bit of pushback when you tried to get some outside help and backing for this. What has it been like with the engineers platform? So, you know, because we had so much pushback on the workshops, it kind of set us up for success in the future with the work, with the platform because we used the profits from the workshops to fund the early build of the platform. So we're able to kind of, you know, just, just move things around and that such to have the workshops fund the platform. But as we built out the MVP, obviously we got to build team. We got to hire developers and that costs a lot of money. I'm, I'm a music guy and I'm trying to get into tech and understanding tech. And, you know, every day I wake up, I'm learning something new and new and new and new and how, you know, to move tactfully in this industry. So, you know, we brought on a growth advisor, Jacob Schamberger. Uh, he previously was at a company called Vice, you know, helping with growth and operations. And we brought him on. You know, since then, he's helped with infrastructure, help understanding what we need as a business for runway for the next 10 to 12 months. You know, just so on, just understanding how to properly run the company from the inside. So the main goal when he came on board, once we started getting users, once we start booking projects, we're like, it's time to figure out how to scale it at a way that we can manage it. And to do that, we need some funds. We need finance. So I tapped into my network. You know, I hit AJ Rolan, uh, who is one of the managing partners at Slauson and the co-founder at Slauson. We had a relationship just being from LA, a LA cat. I seen that he launched uh, Slauson, the company. And, you know, I just shot my shot in Instagram DM. I said, hey, I got a crazy idea. I got an MVP that's out. This is our deck. You know, I know this is not the right approach, but man, give me a chance. You know, I've been talking to VCs here and there, but, you know, a lot of them don't understand music. And, you know, I'm not a tech guy, so I wasn't getting that much interest. You know, I had to oversell myself to these VC guys who just didn't understand the business. And I know what we have is way bigger than me selling myself short. So I wanted to be real intentional with the team that you brought on board. And, you know, I felt like Slauson and company with AJ and Austin were the best fit because they understand music. They understand me and the culture. And they're just super supportive. So once we got Slauson involved, you know, instead of getting more VCs involved, I wanted the industry to see that the industry, I wanted tech and everybody to understand and see that the music industry is supporting this. So instead of me having a whole cap table full of venture capitalists, I got one VC or two VCs. Uh, We got Slauson Company and the Community Fund. And then the rest, I got all angels, which are artists 
who are some of the biggest in the game, but also understand the problem because they've dealt with it in their early career. So now that they've dealt with that problem, they're involved with fixing it with the solution, which is engineers. So we got investors from Kendrick Lamar. We got Roddy Rich. We got DJ Khaled, DJ Mustard, YG, Russ, Young Guru. Uh, you know, the list goes on. And these are all producers, artists, and engineers who've been in the game who understand the problem and for the first time now could be a part of the solution. And to be honest, even though you may not have had some of those institutional backers that a lot of other platforms have, you having some of these very influential angel investors that have their own investments and their own distribution, that can end up being even more beneficial for you in the future because of just how the landscape has worked. There's so much power shifting from institutions to individuals. And in a lot of ways, I feel like hip hop artists have been early on this. And those are the folks that are on your cap table. 100%. And all those people are First-time investors, you know, these a lot of these people are who are big in the music industry don't get into investing that much. So, you know, we're just happy that we're able to kind of, you know, help diversify some of these already big people into tech. And it's like, what better place to do it than, you know, with one of their peers, you know, not some guy sitting again on the 40, 40 floors of a building in, in San Francisco. So, you know, it's a lot more intention and it's it's a lot more genuine, you know, and and, and I believe the industry will realize that over this next six months. Yeah, I think so. And I think that I've even seen Kendrick, for instance, like I know he's on the cap table at Triller now. So I'm seeing his name come up and like even his name, he wasn't someone who I saw come up as often, let's say some of his peers that were investing as much. So it's good to see that transition. I do think that, of course, there's the big names in hip hop that have always been investing, but there's a lot of folks who haven't. And that's where I think the momentum and things can start to shift because it then just makes it more likely that some opportunities like what you're building can get even more traction because I assume that this is just the beginning for you, right? If engineers continues to grow and have the potential, there is going to be a bigger opportunity to want to have more funding, to be able to take that to the next level. But that may not necessarily come from the angels. That's going to most likely come from the next level up. Right. And that's really, I mean, it's all about inspiration, right? Like, you know, who inspired me to really just take my business and go forth with his Nipsey Hustle? You know, as we were mixing Victory Lap, that was his main thing is just talking to us about business. You know, you're not cool unless you come in here talking about business or talking about a new book that you read. You know, it's really empowering your people. And the fact that I came where I come from and I'm building what I'm building, got the opportunity to really reinvent or even disrupt the industry. You know, it's just showing somebody who's looking like me or looking, you know, who come from where I come from or the the neighborhood that they come from. Like, yo, I can start here, but I can grow into the next biggest CEO in music, you know, just by having a good idea and executing on it. So it's more than it's coming with a good product. It's inspiring the youth to know that you're not stuck in a box. You can, you know, sit in these meetings with a sweatsuit on raising millions of dollars from just an idea that you have in your head and you don't have to change for nobody. You know, so it's, it's more of that for me that I feel like is my purpose doing this whole thing is leading by example in that light. Definitely. And Nipsey's a great example of this himself, right? Like he is not a suit by any stretch of the imagination. He is not a suit. He was somewhere like, I mean, he had the tats, he had the cornrows, he was authentically himself. And he was talking about, okay, yes, I'm going to put myself in position. So if I'm sitting courtside, I'm going to be sitting next to the CEO of Tinder and I'm going to be rapping with him about how I can get involved. And it really would have been dope to just see the future of what he would have been able to do in this landscape, right? One of the things I've often thought is I look at the success success may be a strong word, but I look at the wave of interest in NFTs over the past few years, and Nipsey would have been all over this. I feel like the whole scarcity model of his $100 mixtape is right aligned with this type of mentality. 1,000%. He was, Nipsey was big on crypto back in 2017. Like, 
I can't imagine what his portfolio is looking like if they have access to it. Like he was big on crypto. I think invested in one of the crypto marketplaces. I forgot which one it was, but he was big on crypto, really. But again, like you said, it's just being ahead of the curve. It's just it's having foresight and having vision um, and most importantly, execution. So those are the lessons that I've learned being around Nipsey. And, you know, you know, God rest his soul. You know, I'm able to implement that in what I'm doing today, you know, based on those learnings that I've, I've learned from him over these past few years. The marathon continues, right? Marathon forever continues. Rest in peace to Nip Hustle. Definitely. I'm curious for you because now for so much of your career, you've been able to focus on mixing and the work that you've done, not just with TDE, but with others in the industry. But now you have this business that you're running as well. How has it been managing both of those? Because you were already someone that wears a number of hats and now you're a startup founder. You know, for high risk come high reward, right? You said it, it's just my time management. You know, one thing I learned early on, again, you know, from mixing everyone's album, I hit a brick wall in 2017. You know, I, I spread myself way too thin, doing too much, trying to please everybody and, and not putting time for myself. So during that time, I was dealing with depression badly. You know, I was, I hit a brick wall, point blank period. And again, everything happens for a reason because now going through that, I realized how to manage my time in a way where I put myself first, but still make sure I execute on all my ideas and plans and work. So, you know, it's just building a good team around you to help support the full vision is very important. And um, also just no excuses. You know, a lot of people use excuses. Uh, I'm one of them at times, you know, I get lazy like the average person, but it's all about the end goal, right? It's all about the vision that you have and how you're going to get there. Are you going to get there by, you know, taking two days off to watch TV, play video games, or are you going to get there by sacrifice? And I'm taking the sacrifice route. Mm. And in terms of your vision for engineers specifically, where do you see things a few years from now? Where do you see things five years from now? Engineers, as of now, again, is an MVP. We're strictly focused on building the tools to help audio engineers succeed and manage a business, but that's just scratching the surface. You know, obviously, engineers, nine times out of 10, is also a producer. So once we've perfected the workflow, perfected all the tools necessary to help set up engineers for success, we want to add on producer marketplaces to allow them to then sell beats. And then at full scale, give an artist the ability to go to the engineers, book an engineer, you know, book a studio, buy a beat and then distribute your song to any platform. So we wanted to make it a full vertical, you know, from creation all the way to distribution platform for creatives, really reinventing the music industry for the digital age. So again, we're strictly just starting out perfecting the audio engineering services because I understand we're in the trenches. We're at the bottom of the totem pole. But because it's such an underrepresented part of the music industry, the trust that we're building within the community is, is bigger than any other platform I feel and I can see can build because we're really in the trenches with them. And I understand that because I am them. So, you know, as we organically grow and we keep building out these tools, obviously naturally we're going to grow into, you know, something that, you know, I probably can't even explain right now, you know, which is exciting. Yeah. And I think that that's the path that makes the most sense because you are focusing on an underserved niche right now, which is the audio mixing engineers. There are tons of tools out there. I hear so much from people that there are so many tools that they can't keep track of. But I think that's because a lot of these tools can start to look the same, whether it is a music distributor or some type of distributor. That's such a broad term, but you're focusing on an aspect of this that you yourself can speak to. You put all the energy in there, you master that, and then naturally you can expand into the other areas. And I think that's where the power of niche comes from, especially when it's from someone like yourself who has walked the walk and you've seen what the challenges can be. And now you're fixing that not just for yourself, but for the next generation. 
Exactly, exactly. You know, people always talk about, you know, we're a marketplace and that's not it. You know, we've built a marketplace on top of the tools that we allow engineers use to facilitate a project. So it's just, again, it's just understanding the problems in real time, you know, not analytical stuff that people are, are might be looking at to try to create their business. I'm really understanding the problems because I'm dealing with them. So I think that alone really was the X factor to help us get to where we are today. And I think it's going to be the one of the biggest factors in growing this company into the next, you know, billion dollar company. Mm. And is it ever tough as a mixing engineer yourself to both manage that side of your hat versus the founder side? And by that specifically, I mean, I think there is a perfection that can come in wanting the music to sound the right way and wanting to make sure it gives off this certain vibe and spending the amount of time that's required to do that, as opposed to more of the MVP aspect of like, no, we got to get this out. We got to get this out. Done is better than good. Right. A hundred percent. I lose my I lose my mind about that all the time because I'm such a perfectionist when it comes to this work in the studio. But, you know, the whole goal of MVP is just throwing it out there and see if it sticks, you know, throwing it out there, you know, having all these bugs, having people having issues and uploading problems, you know, and that's how we know what to hyper focus on moving forward is, okay, we got to focus on this feature, focus on this bug, focus on X, Y, and Z. But again, it always boils down to building that team out. You know, I understand that these are two different worlds. You know, that's one thing that I am blessed to have is just being able to understand that I don't know everything in this field. You know, I know my strengths and I will play those strengths, but I also know my weaknesses. So the goal is to bring the team around that can help with those weaknesses, but also we can move together as a unit and all learn and grow together. So, you know, thanks to, you know, Dan Dan Maynard, uh, our, our, my co-founder uh, and COO. Again, we got Jacob Schamberger who came in helping with growth and Luke Sorensen, who's helping on the tech side. We just brought on our first uh, full-time developer, Ali Rahman. And we're looking to hire more. We're constantly recruiting. We're looking for more developers. We're looking for more team players. And yeah, just playing our strengths, you know, hiring the best in the field at what they do to come, you know, add to the puzzle. I hear that. And that's the way it should be, man. That's the way it should be. And um, I know we're getting to the, um, the the tail end here, but before we let you go, I do want to go back to the music quick. And I know I, I, I shortchanged you before. I know I said that you're Grammy nominated and you are a three-time <laughs> Grammy award winning, as I should I'm have said. With <laughs> I'm messing with you. <laughs> but I'm curious though, is there a project of yours that you are most proud of that you look back and be like, oh, this was that record right here? Yeah, man. I mean, it's cliche to bring up anything Kendrick related, but I mean, one of my favorite albums is uh, To Pimp a Butterfly. And that's because, you know, we're coming off of Good Kid Mad City, right? An album that, you know, just really sculpted a generation. And then Kendrick jumps into this, you know, this whole, is a whole different sonic sound to how Pimp a Butterfly sounds compared to, to, compared to Good Kid Mad City. So it reminds you, I'm, I'm self-taught, wet behind the ears, you know, still figuring it out. And I go from a whole programmed album with programmed music to a live album recording 15-piece bands and mixing upright bass and doing things that I was not, you know, familiar with. You know, I had to do a lot of studying. I went back and listened to the Mo' Better Blues soundtrack and a lot of, a lot of Beatles. Abbey Road was on repeat, understanding just placement of drum elements and sonic textures. But that album taught me patience and it also taught me it's okay not to know everything. Because again, because I didn't know how to specifically blend an upright bass with a live program bass, you know, again, added to the creation of my sound, which is making sure it feels right rather than the ones and zeros lining up. So when I say it taught me patience, it taught me patience all around to just make me feel comfortable with, you know, not knowing it all, if that makes sense. You know, I don't know if that answer made sense to you, but, you know, that album stuck with me. It helped me grow as a person, as an engineer working with all these different elements. The board that I mixed the album with, this I bought it. So this is the board from Interscope 
that, you know, I had to, you know, through my career, I had the opportunity to buy. And now it's inside my facility, which is No Name Recordings, which used to be the old Death Row Studios. So, you know, that whole time kind of really shaped and molded me into who I am today and where I'm going in the next five, 10 years. That's powerful. And I do think that a lot of people really do look at that album as the album of the decade that is defining just with everything that happened, especially right after the Black Lives Matter movement really kicked off. We really needed some type of music to speak to that. And he obviously did that with that album. And you all obviously worked on that to make it what it is. That's dope. Right. That's like just music in general. It's like it's always been an escape, but you know, being able to create it in real time, it's it's a different type of superpower because you can really see you see it being created. But then again, I was Kendrick's DJ as well, so I would be in the studio as we're making it. Then I would be on stage with him as he performing it, and we would be in countries that they don't speak any English, but they're reciting the words word for word. And I'm like, holy shit, this is powerful, you know. And you know, just frequencies in general, like you know, mixing music is religious to me. You know, that's the only thing. Like I said, I have severe ADHD. And when I mix, that's the only thing that can sit me down for 10 hours at a time. You know, I get this kind of tunnel vision when I'm working on a song. And, you know, there's power behind that. There's spiritual behind that. And that's why I'm going so hard with, with building this community around the art of engineering and, and helping those diamonds in the rough that were like me, just not having no access. You know, I want to be that access for these people, whether it's through my workshops or through the platform that we're creating. I hear that. I hear that. But right, before we let you go, though, talk to me quick because you mentioned it. Talk to me quick about the death row piece and you now buying and being in that studio. What does it feel like? It's surreal. I feel the energy. You know, again, this studio is, it used to be called Can-Am Recorders. It was death row records from 93 to 98. All Eyes on Me was recorded and mixed here. Um, a lot of the corrupt albums, death, uh, a lot of Nate Dogg albums were done here. It's a full circle moment. Like I said, Dre is my mentor. You know, when Dre, when Kendrick signed to Dre, you know, I learned how to use this board from Dre. So the fact that I'm able to now own this building and, you know, have a piece of history and continue the legacy that came out of this building, you know, again, it just affirms that I'm moving in the right direction in life. You know, I'm a big firm believer in everything happening for a reason in the universe. And, you know, these things are not happening by mistake. You know, I'm just trying to harness the energy, stay true to myself, stay true to the music and try to, you know, make my family proud. It doubles down on something that Snoop Dogg said himself, right? I think that was about a year ago when he said that, nah, TDE, they're a better version of what we all had done at Death Row. I may be misquoting it verbatim, but he said something along that lines. And you now being in that studio brings that to life even more. Right, right, right. Again, it's intention, intention, you know, it's, it's very intentional. Uh, and, you know, just, uh, yeah, this is just crazy. Universe works in mysterious ways, man. I know, right? I know, right? All right, well, Ali, this is dope. Before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? If you're an audio engineer and an artist, you know, go to engineers.com. You know, uh, you could book some of the world's most talented mixing engineers in real time. Uh, you could view rates and instantly book them. Uh, follow engineers on Instagram and sing sounds. We're going to be launching a, a workshop tour top of 2022. Yeah, and anybody, if you want knowledge, information, access, you know, reach out to us. Uh, let's continue to build this worldwide network. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.